everyone. Welcome to Crime Colts and Coffee. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Bryn. And, and let's get into our coffee review. Yes, I'll go first. Okay. So this week I am reviewing another one of Pete's Coffee. So Ooh. this is spelled P-E-E-T-S. And this is part of the big variety pack of Nespresso pods that I was gifted from, I think it's from Costco. You can get them as well. Mm. Yes. So this one is called Narissimo, and it is the darkest espresso that they have in the pack. Ooh, that sounds delish. Yeah. So here's the little description on their website. Okay. Black as night, sweet as a brulee topping. Narissimo Intensity 11 is our darkest espresso roast in a convenient aluminum capsule that fits in your original Nespresso machine. Well, that sounds very satisfying. How does it taste? It's really good. So I always make my Nespresso's into a latte. So it's not like... Like overboard? Yeah. So it's not like overkill. But um, I don't know. I really like this dark roast. I feel like it's really smooth and it's not bitter though. It has a really good like sweet finish to it. Um, Yeah. So I'm definitely gonna finish this entire pack it came with like 12 little capsules so oh do you like it better than the last pizza you did or about the same or what yeah I like it better I feel like this one is more bold and like flavorful I feel like the other one wasn't like dark enough for me okay so I probably so you're heading towards dark I know but I think it's because I like I put almond milk in it and creamer Uh (laughs) But, um, yeah, so I probably rate this one. I mean, I don't know, it's so hard because it's still like a store bought coffee, and I make it at home, and it's like it's not from our amazing roasters, yeah, and coffee places that we get them from. So as much as I like this for like a home coffee, I'd probably still give it like a six point five or a seven, okay, that's fair, yeah, yeah, I feel like it's really hard to compare especially since we have had so many of these amazing coffee companies and roasters brews sent to us and we will have another one by the way everybody next week don't you worry yes (laughs) but we got to work with what we got you know especially when hard times are afoot so do you have any um information for them like website or anything you want to say before I get into mine yeah uh let me pull up their website here so it's actually just peets.com p-e-e-t-s.com and it looks like they have all different things they have tea and all different things that you can get for your Nespresso and all that kind of stuff nice yep okay so I'll get into mine today I'm drinking a green mountain coffee roaster coffee And it actually is in a K-cup, but they serve it outside of K-cups as well. The one that I'm drinking is the dark chocolate hazelnut, which is really good. And it is a seasonal roast, so you cannot get this year-round. I would have to say, like like Kelsey said, it's kind of hard to give it a real up there rating because it is like a store-bought co- coffee as opposed to a roaster or um, 
like a local coffee shop, which for some reason just tastes so much better. You could taste the love, I guess. And the freshness too. Yeah. Yeah. I do have to say though that this one has a really good combination of dark chocolate and hazelnut. Like you could taste the chocolate notes and you can taste the hazelnut. Like one isn't overpowering the other. Yum. It is a medium roast. It is kosher for anyone who has dietary or religious needs with that. Cool. Yeah. And I would probably rate this one because it is smooth and I did add a little hazelnut creamer to it to, I guess, I guess like boost up that hazelnut even more. <laughs> but um, I would rate this one probably like a seven. Cool. Yeah. Definitely cool, cool, cool. a good quick pop in the Keurig kind of coffee if you're not willing to stop at a coffee shop in the morning. Right. And if you guys actually have any recommendations for us as far as like Nespresso or K-Cups or even just like coffee that you've had from like the grocery store or something that you really like, let us know. Yeah. Or places you want us to reach out to. Yes. Like your local coffee shop. All of the above. Or if you are a coffee shop, just (laughs) send it to us. Yeah. And uh, the website for Green Mountain Coffee Roasters is gmcr.com. And their Instagram is Green Mountain Coffee, but mountain is spelled MTN because I guess they couldn't fit the whole word mountain in that handle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Did you have anything else you want to talk about? I don't think so. I think I'm ready to get right into it today. Cool. I agree. All right. You ready? Yep. So grab your coffee and have a morning with us. So this week's case was suggested by Taylor. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Taylor. (laughs) She also was the one who a couple episodes ago, I was like, she requested we drink iced coffee. (laughs) Good request, Taylor. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) (laughs) So today we will be covering the case of the Velisca Axe murders. I have heard of this case and I'm excited about it. I feel like this is like one of the ones that I've actually heard about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I heard about this one too, but like a long time ago. So a lot of these details were, were definitely a refresher for me. Yeah. I feel like this is a pretty well-known case. So as we do, we're going to start with the background. This took place sometime in the evening of June 9th, 1912, into the morning of June 10th, 1912. The address where it happened was 508 East 2nd Street, and this was in Villisca, Iowa. Eight people were murdered in the Moore household, and this sadly included six children. It breaks my heart. Yeah. There were six members of the Moore family and then two house guests. So the Moore family, the father's name was Josiah B. Moore, and he was 43 years old, also very young. Yeah. The mother was Sarah Moore, and her maiden name was Montgomery, and she was 39. The Moore children were Herman Montgomery. He was 11. That is the cutest name I've ever heard. Yeah, I love it so much. Little I love Herm. all of their names. Oh, <laughs> little Herm. Little Hermie. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, so Herman Montgomery was 11, Mary Catherine was 10, Arthur Boyd was 7, and then Paul Vernon was 5. This is a quote from Wiki. The Moors were, quote, well-known and well-liked in their community. They were also a very wealthy family. Mary Catherine had friends Ina May Stillinger. That is such a cute name, too. Ina May. I know. Oh, my God. I need to bring these names back into circulation. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. And Lena Gertrude Stillinger was 12. So they were sisters. They were sleeping over the night of June 9th. Oh, my God. How horrible. Yeah. Imagine. I mean, actually, don't imagine. But your kids are just going to their friend's house for a sleepover. And and this horrible thing happens. Yeah. That is so terrifying and i feel like an occurrence like this happening in your house where it's your safe space is just so sad and traumatizing yeah i mean obviously a situation like this is sad no matter where it happens but yeah i highly doubt the community let alone this family ever thought something like this would happen Yeah, literally, my number one fear is for something to happen to me while I'm at my home. Oh, my God. I know. I'm crazy. Okay, so now we're going to get on to the timeline. June 9th of 1912, which which we mentioned earlier, the Moore family and their two children that were sleeping that night, they went to the Presbyterian Church. They took part in the Children's Day program. So Sarah had coordinated this program, and the end-of-the-year Sunday school program. The Children's Day program and social mingling that took place after ended around 9.30 p.m. that day. So not too late at all. Yeah, no, I feel like it was pretty early. Mm -hmm. The Moores and Stillinger sisters left and walked back to the Moores house, which was only three blocks from their home. So they were really close. They arrived to the home around 9.45 or 10-ish p.m. They had cookies and milk and went to bed. How sweet is that? Oh, God, it breaks my heart. That was like their little treat for their sleepover and probably doing well at church and stuff before they went to bed. Like a little family gathering of cookies and milk. Oh my God, how innocent. <sighs> so now we're on to June 10th, 1912. Around 7 a.m., the Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, noticed that the family had not come out of the house to do their morning chores. Very good neighbor. Very vigilant. Very vigilant, Mary. So she became concerned and knocked on their door. No one answered the front door, and it was locked when she tried to open it. Which Mary, is, like, strange. Yeah, right? Like, I feel like back then, nobody locked their doors, and I don't know. Yeah, and even just the fact that obviously she was observant of their normal routine and the fact that by 7 a.m. there was no hustle and bustle around the house at all, even if they weren't outside yet. Like, there was no movement and the front door was just locked. Right. It's probably like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. God, so sad. Mary Peckham then let the Moore's chickens out and called Ross Moore, which was Josiah's brother. Oh, she's so nice. She really is. She's really looking out for her neighbors. So Ross then came to the Moore's house around 8 a.m., so also very timely. Mm -hmm. He knocked on the door and shouted. There was still no response. 
he had a copy of one of the house keys so he kind of just let himself in the front door he went into the parlor and opened the guest room door that's where he found Ina and Lena Stillinger's bodies on the bed oh my god how horrifying I just can't even imagine walking into that scene no nor do I hope anyone experiences that that's so sad yeah so Ross told Mary Peckham, who was waiting out on the porch, to call Henry Hank Horton. And there was actually, um, in another article, it was a little bit deferring information, where one article said he called a store on the phone and told them to call Hank. But most of the articles had said he told Mary. So I just went with that information. Yeah. Horton was Velisca's primary peace officer. So for, and I'm not saying this wrong, not police officer, peace officer. (laughs) (laughs) So for anyone who is unsure of what a peace officer actually is, which I, to be honest, was a little like, I I somewhat knew but wasn't fully understanding of the difference. Yeah. Um, I have a quote from approved course, and this is a quote. According to GoLawEnforcement.com, the term peace officer will vary from one state to another, but commonly means a position that carries a badge, has the power to arrest, and also carries a firearm. Other definitions include any person that has the authority to enforce laws in a state or jurisdiction. Hmm, I actually did not know that was a term. Yeah, I, I, I've heard of it, but I was like, wait, what's the difference between that and a police officer? So Horton arrived around 8:30 a.m. Again, all I feel like this these people moved quickly. Yeah, very quickly. Yeah. And he searched the house. He found that the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters had all been bludgeoned to death. Ugh. A murder weapon was found in the guest room where the Stillinger sis- uh, sisters were found. It was an axe that had belonged to Josiah Moore. And it was left leaning against a wall. My God. Like, the I feel like didn't even so, care like, to like clean up. Yeah. And that's so like nonchalant. Like, you're just like propping the weapon against a wall after you did this horrific crime. Right. I feel like it's almost like showy. Yeah. So, we are going to get into some details about the crime. There is a little bit of graphic detail. Yeah. After examining the bodies, doctors believed that the murders occurred between midnight and 5 a.m. There were two used cigarettes found in the attic, and because of this, speculation that the killer or killers were in there waiting until the family and guests were all asleep. That is horrifying. Yeah. That is legitimately my biggest fucking fear. Yeah, meaning this person or people would have potentially known they were at church and snuck in while they were there yeah oh god meaning they had been watching them longer than because they would have had to know their routine or they just know who the family was to know that they would be out that night not that this would have protected me in any way shape or form but this is why i sleep with the taser next to my bed (laughs) (laughs) just don't tase yourself right (laughs) god But I feel like another, I don't know, just because I think about things as I'm obviously as I'm researching and this is just like 
my own perspective on a, a potential other explanation. I went to, besides it being a killer or killers that were in the attic, my mind was like, what if Josiah was like sneaking cigarettes in the attic? And didn't tell So anyone. his wife wouldn't know. <laughs> my mind went to this person had been living in their attic and they didn't know. Ew. No. <laughs> or what if Sarah was sneaking cigs in the attic? <laughs> and they found them and they were like, it was the killer. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I wonder if they kept those cigarettes to like test DNA nowadays. I feel like there that was, was really... so early on that they probably didn't even like imagine yeah. that that would be possible. That's that's really sucky yeah i know it really sucks yeah so the killer also and this is very strange the killer also left a four pound piece of slab bacon leaning against the wall next to the axe like what is the significance with that like to be more nonchalant and like to to seem that way i don't understand right or just like taunting right i don't understand or they were snacking in between and like left it there how fucking gross it's just or is it symbolism right because i mean not that i use this term but some people might refer to a cop as like a pig yeah maybe that's what it was and about they, he left it right next to the murder weapon maybe it was like symbolic in some way who knows or like a calling card type of thing yeah, like the wet bandits. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite like Marv would do it, but yeah. <laughs> so there were also pieces of clothing taken from dresser drawers in the house. And the clothing was covering all of the mirrors and the glass in the entry doors of the house. What? Which makes me think the killer or killers didn't want to look at themselves like too ashamed yeah or there was some other maybe spiritual thing tied into it where they were thinking the mirrors were like a portal or maybe another form of symbolism in some way you know like yeah very weird yeah very strange i would like to know the mindset of that yeah me too and then the kitchen table had a plate of uneaten food and a bowl of bloody water on it. Oh my God. The amount of like murder cases that you hear about where there's a plate of uneaten food or unfinished food, it's just yeah. so disturbing. Yeah. That's what Golden State Killer would sometimes eat in the people's kitchens or right. like stay there for hours after hang out, pour himself a drink, eat some food. It's just so disconnected and so psychopathic like that yeah. someone it happens could so do often, that. Though. Yeah, and I feel like the bowl of bloody water was he like soaking his hands to rinse off the blood? Right. I don't Before he was going to eat and then maybe he was interrupted for some reason. Oh, I don't know. It's just so strange. So the killer locked the doors and took the house keys with him, which would explain the locked door when Mary went to go check the next morning. Yeah. Josiah and Sarah Moore were murdered in the first in the master bedroom. 
Josiah received the most blows to the head out of everyone. The blade mm-hmm. of the axe was also used to kill him, while the blunt end was used on the rest of his victims. So I wonder if it was more personal. It seems that way. Yeah. Like he had a vendetta against Josiah for some reason. Or maybe just like men in general. Right. This is a Wikipedia quote. Quote, his face had been cut to such an extent that his eyes were missing. End quote. Oh, God. Oh, that's so horrifying. That is so beyond sad. I feel so bad for this family. Me too. It's horrifying. Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul were all murdered next. The killer or killers then returned to the parents' room where more blows were then inflicted with an axe. <sighs> like, what? what was this person's problem? Like, why do you have to... It's like overkill. It's overkill. Yeah, it yeah. is. They it's were horrible. I feel like they were just completely disconnected at that point and going completely berserk. Yeah. Cuz I had read that and I forgot I forgot to include it in here, but I had read that there were even some marks like in the walls and the ceilings from the blade from the the killer swinging the blade so aggressively and it like catching the ceiling or catching the wall oh my god so much yeah. anger yeah there was actually a shoe that was filled with blood that was knocked over by one of the killer or killers oh my god Ina and Lena were then killed in the guest room in the same manner as the other children this is another wikipedia quote Quote, investigators believed that all of the victims, except for Lena Stillinger, had been asleep while murdered. Oh, God. Honestly, I hope that they didn't see, hear, feel anything because I I just can't even imagine. Yeah, that is just so incredibly awful and just animalistic. And I can't imagine... What would go through someone's mind to do something like this? Mm -mm. So because the investigators believe that she may have been awake, Lena, Mm -hmm. there was evidence that she had tried to fight back. She was found laying crosswise on the bed and she had a defensive wound on her arm. So this is kind of why they thought that she, you know, was awake. Yeah. Her nightgown was pushed up to her waist and she had no underwear on. Due to this, there was also speculation that Lena was sexually assaulted by the killer or killers, or that there was an attempt, at least, to do that before she was killed. I have no words. I just hope that that wasn't the case, and maybe she was just a child that literally slept with no underwear on at night, and her nightgown from, like, rustling around in her sleep had just... Or, like, putting up a fight. Yeah, or from her putting up a fight had just, like risen up like that and this person clearly did not care about fixing yeah. it after they just put the axe on the wall and left yeah a few articles actually mentioned that sexual assault for lena had been ruled out but just gonna throw that in there let's hope that's really the case yeah so all of the victims had their heads covered with bedclothes so then there again i feel like it's just a thing with the killer where he can do these horrible things but can't look at what he's done he or she 
Yeah, or that makes it seem like it was personal. Right. Like he knew them and didn't want to see them after. Yeah. Or like you said, didn't want to see what he had done after. But in the same time, it's so conflicting because other things make it seem like he didn't give a fuck after. Right. He was sitting down eating bacon or whatever and soaking his hands. Right. So as we've seen before, especially back in the day, people swarmed to the house and to the scene, which destroyed and contaminated any possible DNA evidence. And DNA testing was probably not even thought of in the year 1912, but still, it's really frustrating. That's really fucking awful. Like, the whole scene of the crime is just ruined. Yeah, and, like, this is stuff that if it had been properly saved nowadays, they could have possibly figured out who this was. Right, and even if there wasn't, like, DNA, they could have seen, like, a footprint or something outside Mm -hmm. or... I wonder if from, like, a forensic perspective or just, like, you might even be able to answer this question. If there – so there was that bowl of bloody water on the table. If blood is watered down like that, can they still extract DNA from it? Yeah. Okay, so they literally could have saved, like, a mason jar of that water. I know, but, like, I feel like back then they probably thought that they would never, at least in their lifetimes, see or even think about the possibility to analyze DNA, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just what they were taught. And I wonder if even – I mean, it wasn't mentioned in any of the articles, but obviously the the food on the table was uneaten, but I wonder if that bacon slab – had been bitten into at all like if there would be dna on that at all even from touching it like touching raw meat most likely that's so frustrating yeah all right so moving into some suspects and there are a decent amount of them andrew sawyer was one of them he was a transient and he was unaccounted for during the murders. He was interrogated but not charged. And that's all there really was about that man. Like maybe there's more, but like he we no one knew where he was, so let's check him. Uh, yeah, apparently that was really typical in 1912 or the early 1900s where if you were like a wanderer or hop trains like we talked about in one of our episodes or kind of were like nomadic you were automatically questioned for crimes that happened oh my god which is really fucking awful yeah but it was like a common thing back then to wonder where these people were and like accuse people who have unaccounted time or who are like drifters so i'm assuming that might be why he was a suspect because there really was nothing else that seemed incriminating to ask this man or consider him a suspect that i could find anyway right so then there was frank fernando jones aka frank f jones he was a Villisca resident and iowa state senator 
Josiah Moore had worked for Jones for many years, and Josiah had actually left to open his own store and reportedly took business away from Jones's store. So that so, would be, like, a reason. Yeah, that was, like, I guess, quote-unquote motive mm-hmm. of why this guy could possibly be a suspect. There was also a rumor that Josiah had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law. And as far as we could find, there was no evidence to back this up. Yeah. So that might just be, like, hearsay or a rumor. Mm-hmm. There was another man named Henry Lee Moore, and this person was not related to the Moore family at all, even though he had the same last name, same spelling, and everything. Weird. Yeah. He was convicted for the murder of his mother and grandmother a couple months after the Velisca murders, and he killed them with an axe. Very suspicious. Yeah. He was also a suspected serial killer. And the cases obviously had similarities, even outside of the acts. Mm -hmm. So that's why he was considered. There was Sam Moyer. This was Josiah's brother-in-law. And he reportedly threatened to kill Josiah multiple times. My God. Yeah. Moyer was investigated and his alibi cleared him. I wonder, like, how the investigations were back then, though. Like, were they intricate? Right, like, they didn't have video footage where they like, oh, I was at my brother's house. Right. And the brother's like, yep, he was there. Yeah. You know. Like, so how did they actually confirm alibis? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) Then there was Paul Mueller or Miller. Sorry, there's different articles with different last names or possible confusion with his last name he was an immigrant so it might it might have also been a change in spelling when he immigrated to the united states which was a common thing yeah he was an immigrant from what was thought to be germany he was a sole suspect in the 1897 murder of a family in west brookfield massachusetts he had been a farmhand for this family. Ugh. Yeah, which is really awful as well. Yeah. There was an unsuccessful year-long manhunt for him after that murder. And in 2017, a book came out called The Man from the Train by Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James, who oh, wow. is Bill's daughter. The book talks about the Velisca murders being part of a crime spree committed by a serial killer. So this was like their theory. I need to read this book. Yeah, it sounds really good and very like historical. Yeah. Just like a nice read. So the killer, according to the Jameses, the killer was believed to choose families that lived near railroad tracks, hence the name The Man from the Train. And attacked them with an axe while they were sleeping. There were at least 59 people murdered in 14 different incidents. My God. During this time period. And it happened like over a decade. Horrible. Yeah. The Jameses believe Mueller was behind it. And then this is a quote from Wiki. Quote, professor and crime writer Harold Schechter writes that the Jameses offered the most probable solution yet for the Velisca murders. Which would make sense, but... Yeah. 
I would love to read the book to see the facts and stuff they point out or the comparisons they make. Yeah. But I can see like the like the summary of it making sense. Right. Like it it all seems like it would go together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the next suspect's name was William Blackie Mansfield. So the theory that Frank F. Jones hired Mansfield to murder the family is kind of where this one came from. Mm. As mentioned, other axe murders had taken place before, both before and after the Velisca axe murders, and they were pretty similar in nature. In Colorado Springs, Colorado, there was murders of H.C. Wayne his wife and his child, as well as Mrs. A.J. Burnham, who were brutally murdered in the same manner as the Moors. So this was like around the same time. Yeah. This is so sad that this was such a thing. Yeah. Where it was like these brutal slangs of families in this time period and with axes. I know. I don't understand. That's horrifying. Some other ones that were similar in nature around this time were of Ellsworth in Ellsworth, Kansas, Paola, Kansas, and then multiple axe murders along the Southern Pacific Railroad, which happened between 1911 and 1912. So literally the exact same year. Wow. Yeah. There was also the Axemen of New Orleans killings. And there were others besides these that we mentioned. So just a ton of these similar murders happening all around the same time. That's crazy. Yeah. For anyone who watched um, American Horror Story, remember they featured the Axeman in two different seasons? I don't remember. Which seasons? I want to say maybe what was the one with in New Orleans? Was that Coven? Yeah. Yeah, I want to say that season. Oh, you're and right. And they might have also brought him back in 1984. Yeah, you're right. Oh, my yeah. God. I forgot about that. Yeah, and I'm assuming it's probably loosely based around him, but... Right. Yeah. Wow. I love American Horror Story. Yeah. Um. So Mansfield was the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson. This is all a quote from Wikipedia. Wilkerson believed Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois, on July 5th, 1914, two, which was two years after the Velisca murders. The axe murders committed in... Paola, Kansas, four days before the Velisca murders and the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Illinois. Wow. So it's just all like right, literally right around the same time, which is yeah. crazy. So there was an alibi provided through payroll records that Mansfield was in Illinois at the time of the Velisca murders. He was released for lack of evidence, and Mansfield ended up suing Wilkerson. So he was like, screw you. I have proof that I wasn't there, so I'm suing you for that. He also won that lawsuit. It's just crazy. Like, I really want to know how the payroll records were provided. Like, can't you just easily edit those? Probably. You know? 
Yeah, you could probably forge those, especially yeah. back then. Who knows how they did it? Right. They might have wrote it in with a pencil. Right. Like you could have just literally wrote, written your time and stamped it or something. Mm-hmm. Reverend George Kelly was another suspect. He was a traveling minister in in town the night of the murders. He came to Villisca on June 8th, 1912, which was the night before the murders, to teach the children's day services. Remember, the Moors went to this service on June 9th. So I Very guess that's close why connection. he was a suspect. Yeah. He left the town on June 10th between 5 and 5.30 a.m., which is literally right after the murders happened. And right before... And- what like an hour and a half two hours before the bodies were found yeah so reverend george kelly was described as very peculiar as a man he was accused of being a peeping tom in adulthood and allegedly asked young women and girls to pose nude for him on multiple occasions gag me like this guy might as well have done it yeah He's that very so suspicious gross. and high on my list. Yeah. He became oddly fascinated with the case and even wrote letters to police and investigators about it. That is like typical, I feel like, for some murderers to do. Yeah. Like they become so obsessed with the case. Not like interested. Like a person might be like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. And kind of hyper-focus on it, especially if you're living in that town. Like, how did this happen in my town to this family, you know? It's like following the news articles right? And everything that's possibly related. He became so oddly fascinated that in these letters, he included details and claimed to have possibly witnessed the murders. Dear God. Yeah, and these were details that he should not have known. Yeah. This obviously raised suspicion. Basically... In his childhood, he had some form of mental break. So although he had a known mental illness, they're basically questioning, is this delusion or is this fact? Like, is he coming up with the this scenario in his head and his mental illness is kind of elaborating on it? Or is he saying things because he was actually there? Like, I'm sorry, but there's difference between delusion and fact of yeah. the scene of the crime. Yeah, well, that's what they were questioning. Yeah. So the reverend was also rumored to have told people on his train ride out of Villisca about the murders, even though the bodies hadn't been discovered yet. Like, what the fuck? Like, how would he possibly know that a family was brutally murdered with an axe in their home when they weren't even found yet? Right. Imagine being the person that, like, he told this to at, like, 6 a.m. on the train, you know? Oh, my God. So, in 1914, which was two years after the murders, he was arrested for sending obscene things in the mail to a woman. Oh, God. He was then sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and this was a mental hospital in Washington, D.C. In 1917, he was arrested for the Velisca murders. He actually confessed to the murders in court, but the jury didn't believe him. What? So, yeah. The fuck do you mean? Yeah. He also gave police a confession, which he later recanted. 
And apparently he did this after hours of interrogation, which we've also discussed in other episodes. So the question was, could this be another case of a false confession or coercion? Or was he actually telling the fucking truth? Like, I feel like there's just too many signs pointing to him. Yeah. Never mind the fact that, like, he legit was in the church with the girls that night and with the family that night. Apparently, the day before when he had arrived, the Stillinger sisters were singing in some kind of choir or attending some kind of mass. So he had seen them there the day before as well. So he, like, picked them out. So, yeah, so he was, like, aware of them, around them. The only thing that wouldn't make sense is the cigarette thing then. Yeah. And him, like, loitering in their house beforehand because he would have been at the mass. Right. Unless he left after when everyone was mingling. And made it back before them. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the only thing that really wouldn't make sense. I think. Yeah, I agree. In which case, it could have just also been Sarah smoking a ciggy. Up in the attic. Up in the attic, and it wasn't even connected to the killer. (laughs) (laughs) It's, like, legit, though. Taking a ciggy break, yeah. Yeah. So, um, he was acquitted after two trials. The first trial, there was a hung jury, and then the second trial was when he was acquitted. Yeah, because I guess they didn't believe what he was saying or at that point he had recanted or whatnot. God. And then there was another suspect outside of the men we all all the men we just mentioned named Loving Mitchell. And besides that name, there was really not much on him. So nothing really came of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this just all blows my mind. So. Going into the aftermath, the Velisca Axe murders remain unsolved to this day, which is horrifying for the family. That is so beyond sad. Yeah. And this is a quote from iowacoldcases.org. Quote, legislation was written in response to the murder, including the establishment of the current State Bureau of Criminal Investigation's predecessor. Mm. Yeah. There is a 2004 documentary named Velisca, Living with a Mystery. So check that out if you want to get a little bit more info about this case. Mm-hmm. In June 10th of 2013, there was a documentary that came out named The Axeman Enigma, the real-life inspiration behind Slay Utterly. In June of 2017, a horror film was released on Netflix called the Axe Murders of Velisca. And this is just a little description on iowacoldcases.org. Quote, three ghost hunting teens get more than they bargain for when they break into a historic home where eight people were murdered over a century ago. Oh, my God. I feel like that's a little disrespectful. I, yeah, I would say. They might as well have just done a documentary on this, on this, the case and the right. family that it happened to. Right. There are tours of the Velisca Axe Murder House where you can visit and even stay overnight, which I don't understand that fully. But the website, if you wanted to check that out, is VelizcaIowa.com. 
Yeah, we'll include that in our resources and our show notes. But I feel like it's some like it's somewhat like when you talked about the Lizzie Borden house, mm-hmm. where like people benefiting off of a horrific crime. Yeah, and like I could see how some people might have an interest in it maybe historically like from a historical perspective or from just knowing the case perspective but taking it to a level of like staying overnight and taking pictures in the spots where they were killed and stuff like I feel like that's just so beyond disrespectful it is and it's like that shouldn't be a thing like what do you go there searching for yeah I don't understand like it was the scene of a horrific crime where people were brutally murdered I don't understand that yeah the only nice thing I think about it is that the house itself is still kept in the condition like it's it's historical so it's literally how it was in 1912 yeah I mean like they that kept in the itself, house as is that in itself is cool like just yeah. as far as his history goes you know just to yeah. see something kept so nice and pristine like that but outside of that i feel like it's just awful yeah and just people monetizing off of an awful situation yeah i don't know horrible yeah and that was the case of the Velisca axe murderers so thank you taylor for recommending this case i knew about it but i didn't know it in such great detail so i Mm -hmm. appreciate that you sending us that case yeah, for sure. And I mean, the fact that it's literally been 110 years and this case is not solved or this family or generations now of this family have not gotten answers and that there's not been justice for two adults and six children is horrifying. It's so disturbing. Yeah. And especially if this person also was a serial killer and did this to multiple families and literally ended generations of family, that's just so sickening. Yeah, and it's like, what's the hope now of even getting that solved, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially if evidence wasn't preserved properly or it was completely stomped upon. Yeah. Oh, so sad. I feel like even without the knowledge of forensics like we have nowadays, people should have been aware enough to not stomp all over a crime scene even in 1912. Yeah. Yeah. It's just common sense. I agree. Common sense rule number one, don't stomp on a crime scene. (laughs) (laughs) Don't switch your frilly dress over a crime scene. (laughs) Don't wear your fucking hunting boots to a crime scene. <laughs> yeah. For real, though. God. It's just so rude. Don't bring your dog to a crime scene. Mm-hmm. All of the above. Just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Stay the fuck away from the crime scene. <laughs> For real. Respectfully. Yes. Thank you. Amen. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Want to wrap it up? Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> so... 
If you want to see our Instagram, which is where we post all of our weekly recommendations and coffee reviews, it's Crime Cults and Coffee on Instagram. And then you can also check out our Facebook. It's also Crime Cults and Coffee. And that's where we post our weekly resources, photos, and especially like for this week, we'll put all of the documentaries in there and the website links as well. Yes. But please don't... uh be one of those people that goes and stays in this house overnight please don't (laughs) yeah just don't um if you would like to give us a case suggestion like taylor did or send us your listener story you can dm us at crime cults and coffee on instagram or email us at crime cults and coffee at gmail.com and also we would love your reviews or likes or subscriptions or follows on the podcasting platform that you listen to us on um it's so helpful for our podcast to be seen amongst all these other podcasts and for new earbud ears to listen to us (laughs) (laughs) eardrums i was saying earbuds earbuds so put on your earbuds and listen to us And I think that's about it. All right, guys. We will talk to you next week. Until next week. regarding this case and our resources follow us at crime cults and coffee on instagram and facebook